Thanks for listening to today's message. We hope that it will encourage you and help you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more. We're into a series now a few weeks in called Jesus in the Bedroom. And essentially, this is about the ways and the words of Jesus that brought really revolution to lives and to relationships. Humanity had strayed so far off course from God's design in his heart that through the words and ways of Jesus, literally the first sexual revolution, relational revolution occurred 2,000 years ago. Humanity still does a good job of straying away from certain things from time to time, and it brings about all kinds of destruction and pain and distress to our lives. So that's why not only were the words of Jesus so helpful 2,000 years ago, but they, they bear relevance to our lives today. It's worth spending our time remembering. For those of you who maybe haven't been journeying through the last few weeks with us, let me just offer a little brief recap. A few weeks ago, we we introduced four foundational realities, just helpful thoughts that help set the stage, set us in in an important direction together. Here they are. The first is this. Sex is not a basic human need. No matter how much it may feel that way at times, and yes, it is to us as a human species, but it is not actually for each of us as an individual. You are not entitled to it. You cannot demand it. You cannot steal it from somebody else. It is not a basic human need. Secondly, those who are single are equally affirmed. And sometimes in church environments, we rightly so, because it's so important in scripture, we elevate family and marriage and we celebrate it. And at times, at the expense of those who are single, feeling like, well, do I count, or where do I fit, or do I matter? And absolutely, you do. Here's the thing. If you bought into an idea that sex was somehow a basic human need, it's, it's a little bit dehumanizing in ways to those who are single, because then they're not experiencing fulfillment of all their human needs, right? And so somehow there's a discrimination against those who are single. And I don't believe that that's right or good at all. Those of you who are in this church family and you are single and maybe you've been a lifelong single or you're single again or you're divorced or separated, you matter and you are affirmed in our church life. And a series like this is equally important to you because you grow in your own strength and your own ability to relate with others and you serve God's movement as a great contributor here on earth. Third, marriage was God's idea purposed around and inseparably connected to his image. When male and female, we read this in Genesis, and Jesus upheld this with his own words, speaking back to the Father's design in Genesis. When male and female are united, there's a a complete reflection of the image of God that's brought to the world around us. It's inseparably connected to his image and is identified by self-giving love. Marriage is a covenant, and covenant is a big and important word in scripture and in our faith. Covenant is a much stronger word than just agreement. It's a much stronger word than just commitment. Covenant, as gestured by God through scripture towards people over and over and over again, essentially is God saying to people, I am giving you myself completely, exclusively, and permanently. That's his gesture. And we see it most clear 
in the Easter message, the cross and the resurrection, the cross that Jesus went upon was God himself demonstrating, I am giving myself to you completely, permanently and exclusively. So there's always two parties in a covenant. So if that's God's gesture to humanity, what is our response? That's where baptism begins to make more sense. It's, it's a ceremonial act that's it's our response to his gesture of covenant. It's us saying, I receive what you've given me, and now I give myself to you completely, exclusively, and permanently. Fourth foundational thought is this. Sex is God's idea. It wasn't a, an accidental discovery of Adam and Eve when they hugged for a little too long in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> they weren't like, well, that was cool. Uh, no, this was God's idea. And they, I'm sure they did think, well, that was cool, but they, God gets the credit for it. For pleasure and procreation within a mutual, whole self-giving, super consensual, lifelong covenant. Right? Marriage is a covenant. Sex belongs in covenant. Sex is a covenant renewal ceremony. Just in the same way that communion is a covenant renewal ceremony for us as Christians, sex is a covenant renewal ceremony within a marriage. When Jesus was speaking these words that we refer to in this series, when he was speaking them 2,000 years ago, the culture that he was in was uh, largely Jewish, sort of most close to him, but then the Jewish world that he was within was all part of the larger landscape which was influenced by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire had been um, pushing in with all kinds of social and cultural thought that was deeply influencing even the Jewish population around Jesus. And so Jesus' words were very revolutionary, were very radical, and helped shift things that were very distorted. The Roman culture, uh, when it viewed relationship and sexuality, was built on ideas of status-based parameters. So if you were a free man in the Roman society, you had all the rights and freedoms you wanted sexually. And there was almost no consequence for anything you did. You could follow whatever whim and urge you had any time. You may have a wife, and most Roman men would have a wife because it was so important for them to build a legacy through family, but that was the only use of a wife. If they had any other sexual interest or need, they could fulfill it basically however they wanted. Sexuality was also seen as something that could be freely sold and freely stolen from anyone. And there was virtually no consequence at all for this. It was how the culture of the day thought. Essentially, the Roman culture dominated society with a very male-centric view of anything and everything, especially surrounding sexuality. And it made for a very oppressive, oppressive context, especially for women, especially for slaves and young boys. Unfortunately, the Jewish culture while originated in the heart of God's design, had adopted certain thoughts, also echoing some of these uh, far too over-strong thoughts of male dominance in culture. So what kind of things did Jesus say? What kind of things did he do? Well, week one, we looked at the words of Jesus that really upheld this idea of design. 
that the Father has actually designed male and female and relationship and sex and sexuality. Last week, my wife, Pastor Laura, brought a great word to us on this idea of service. And this, so serving one another, was a very countercultural thought to the Roman world of the day. Nobody wanted to be somebody who helped and served somebody else because then you're behaving like the slaves did. That's why you had slaves to do that kind of thing. So that's why it was so mind-blowing in John chapter 13 when Jesus takes off his outer robe and washes the dirty feet of his disciples because no servant or slave was present to do it. And he was showing them a better way, not sort of saying, I'm God and I'm disguised as a servant, but revealing I am God and I am a servant. It was very hard for even his first 12 followers in the room to accept that this is what God is like. That God is not this domineering, power-mongering, you serve me, you serve me type of entity. But instead he shows up and he serves others. And then he tells us to go and do likewise. And so that's so important in a relationship. It's so important in a marriage. And in the Roman culture, and to be honest, in a lot of the Jewish world of Jesus' day, there wasn't a lot of emphasis given to this idea of serving one another in and through relationship because of love. This week, I want us to speak to the idea of value, and you'll see how this unfolds in a few moments. Would you turn with me to Mark chapter 5? Mark chapter 5. As you're going to Mark chapter 5, some of you who are with us, Uh, Last summer, we did a series through the book of Mark, so just a refresher. The first eight chapters of Mark make up what's called part one of a three-part book. And in part one, it's all about the mighty acts of God, the mighty acts of God. So there's these wonderful miracles and things that Jesus is doing throughout the first eight chapters of Mark. In in verse 21, which is where we're going to start, we encounter something called a Markan sandwich. Have you heard of a Markan sandwich before? It's, it's a sandwich made by Mark, and it's in his book. Uh, and in chapter 5, we have one. And in chapter 11, we have another Markan sandwich. And it's a writing technique that Mark employs on these two occasions where he combines two stories into one account on purpose. Maybe you have some favorite sandwiches that you like to make at home from time to time. One of my favorite sandwiches, I don't make it that often because it's a little bit complex, but it's a, a jerk chicken sandwich. So you've got to get the right kind of ciabatta buns, and then you make a uh, cilantro lime aioli. Any aioli people out there? So you make your own cilantro lime aioli. It's very delicious. What you do is bottom layer is ciabatta bun, toast it nicely so it's you know a little bit crispy. A lot of the aioli on it. And then you get... Chicken thighs, jerk seasoning on it. Very important that there's cinnamon in it and cardamom in it as well. And then some nice punchy spices too. You have your chicken thighs there. And then jicama. Anybody had jicama before? Do you know what jicama is? It's very, very good. You look for it at the grocery store. It looks like a sort of oblong turnip or something like that. But if you shred it up or julienne it, it put it in like a slaw with cabbage and carrots and stuff like that. It's like, uh, I don't want to say turnip because it, turnip is a bit, I don't know who eats turnips these days. But... Um, <laughs> It's, it's got the texture of it, but it tastes a little bit apple And so if you put that in with a slaw, it's really, really nice. And so you've got that slaw on top and then pickled red onions. So that's the stuff in the middle. And then on top of that, the top layer, guess what has the aioli again and the ciabatta bun again, right? So that's a sandwich because there's 
two things that are the same, and then the middle is something different. So that's how Mark's writing his story here. He opens with a story, the uh, aioli and the ciabatta, if you will, and then he gets into the actual meat and jicama of it, and then he goes back into the cilantro, aioli, and ciabatta. You following me? Some of you are hungry now, and I understand. Mark is combining two stories together here in chapter 5. Two stories together to send a clear message to his audience about God's heart towards his people. There's a couple clues that Mark writes in where the number 12 shows up two times in this story. So it helps us understand, oh, God is thinking about his people. In that day, he would have been like Israel. 12 represented Israel. So there was a message in these stories about Israel, God's heart to heal and bring new life to Israel. But there was a second layer through this story that was also coming through. It wasn't just God's heart for his people. It was God's heart also for a select and very important group of people that were often overlooked. Let's go into the story together and discover what Jesus is doing here. Verse 21, when Jesus had again crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake, a large crowd gathered around him while he was by the lake. Then one of the synagogue rulers, that was sort of like a local Jewish community center, was the synagogue, um, a ruler named Jairus, came to Jesus. Seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet and pleaded earnestly with him, my little daughter is dying. Please come and put your hands on her so that she will be healed and live. So Jesus went with him. A large crowd followed and pressed around him. So this, up to this point, We've just done ciabatta bun and cilantro lime aioli. Okay, now we're going into the middle part of the story. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had. Yet instead of getting better, she only grew worse. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and she touched his cloak because she thought, if I touch his clothes, I'll be healed. Immediately, her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once, Jesus realized that power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my clothes? So this is a bit comical for the closest followers and friends of Jesus, because, I mean, imagine if you've ever seen rugby, like a big rugby scrum, and somebody getting up and being like, hey, who touched me? I mean, it's just... It's a big crowd pressing in all around Jesus, and suddenly he turns around and he says, who touched me? But verse 32, Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear, and told him the whole truth. He said to her, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace. And I want you to see his last words here. They're on the screen. Could we say these together? Oh, do I have the right one? Next one. There we go. Be freed from your suffering. Let's try it one more time. Be freed from your suffering. When Jesus was still speaking, some men came from the house of Jairus, the synagogue ruler. Your daughter is dead, they said. Why bother the teacher anymore? Verse 36. Ignoring what they said, Jesus told the synagogue ruler, don't be afraid, just believe. Go down to verse 40 with me. He took the child's father and the mother and the disciples, 
who were with him and went into the home where the child was. He took her by the hand and said to her, Talitha Kaum, which means little girl, I say to you, and let's say these words together now. You saw them earlier. Get up. Immediately, the girl stood up and walked around. She was 12 years old, and they were completely astonished. As I mentioned earlier, these stories are packed together first to gesture God's heart towards his whole people, Israel. 12-12 was sort of this clue. Oh, this is what God wants to do to Israel. He wants to bring healing, and he wants to bring new life. That was what Jesus did to these two people in this Markan sandwich. But there's a second category within God's people that are often overlooked that Jesus is gesturing significance towards in this message. There were two females, both doubly outcast. Why? Number one, because they were female. And in the cultures of the day, they were second-class citizens. And two, because both of them were unclean. In the Jewish ceremonial religious world, this woman who had been bleeding for 12 years, if she came in contact with anybody else, she not only was unclean, but she would make them unclean. Do you remember she, she appears to be so um, afraid of confessing to Jesus that it was her who touched him? Why? Because she was aware that she was unclean and she had done something so risky. She had gone to touch a rabbi, knowing full well she would make him unclean. But there was some kind of faith in her heart that thought, I don't think this is just any rabbi. In fact, there's um, some interesting words at play here that when it says that she touched the edge of his garment, there's Old Testament language that talks about there being healing in the wings. And, and the word that's used there in the original language in the Old Testament is like the edge of the garment. It's this, this little piece where there's this idea that if you touched the edge of the garment, there would be healing there. And only the Messiah, only God's promised one could do that. And this woman pieced things together thinking, I don't think he's just a rabbi. I think there's something much more significant about him. This could be God's promised one. This could be the Messiah. This could be Yahweh himself coming here. So if I touch the edge of his garment, there might be healing for me there and she touches and she is healed but she's outcast she's a second class citizen and she's unclean now the dead girl obviously couldn't touch Jesus but she's unclean in the Jewish culture if you came in contact with a dead body you became ceremonially unclean so how does God handle it when he's in the presence of something unclean like a dead body does he shy away and think ah, I don't want to get Unclean. No, Jesus goes and touches the dead body. Wow. And raises her to life again. What's going on in these stories? This isn't just stories about God's heart for Israel and the people of God. It's stories combined together, both featuring women. And Jesus is gesturing to all of humanity that women need to be elevated, that women need to be affirmed for the value that God has given them in his design. To all women of all time, I think the words that you helped me read out loud, that Jesus spoke to those two women in this Markan sandwich, 
I think Jesus is saying these two things to all women of all time. He's saying, get up. And he's saying, be freed of your suffering. Jesus was well aware of the oppressive work of the enemy through the Roman culture and Roman empire and the ways that the Jewish people had adopted some of this thinking was no doubt disturbing to him. And so what does Jesus do in response to this? I'm not gonna let women be treated as second-class citizens. Get up, be freed from this kind of oppression. I want you to consider with me how Jesus treats women throughout the Gospels. Next time you're reading through Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, pay attention to this. A few stories might stand out to you. There's a time Jesus in John chapter four is at a well and a Samaritan woman comes and they have an exchange. There's some dialogue there and she's known in her community for all the wrong reasons and racially there were some complications that would have seemed awkward for onlookers for Jesus to even be there. But how does he respond? He gives her time. He treats her with dignity. In another story in the book of John, a woman is caught in adultery. No mention of uh, a man involved in this adultery, by the way. It's reflective of the culture. She's dragged in and accused before Jesus. But where's the other guy? You can see how corrupt even the Jewish culture was. Like, well, who cares about him? This woman has made a mistake. And how does Jesus respond to this woman who's caught having made a mistake? He protects her and forgives her. In Luke chapter 10, Mary, a friend and associate of Jesus, is found at his feet, listening to him as he's teaching. Her seated at his feet, that's, that's the posture that a disciple would take by their rabbi. Only men could be disciples, so it was thought. But Jesus affirms her sitting there, and in fact tells Martha, you know, she's chosen what's better. He affirms her heart's desire to be a disciple of Jesus. And any good rabbi, if they were allowing somebody to be discipled, they, they thought, this person can do what I can do. This person can be like me in this world. That's what would cause a rabbi to invest in a disciple. And so Jesus affirms her as a disciple. Two things that Jesus is doing in the Gospels when it comes to women. Number one, he's revealing God's heart towards women. And he's not doing it by bashing men. He's doing it by number two, elevating, liberating. He initiates an, an, an elevating, liberating, and countercultural movement through the church towards women. I want you to pay attention to this. Jesus sets the tone for New Testament writing and the advent of the church concerning women. And it's revolutionary for the culture of the day. And it needs to be important to us today, too. I want you to pay attention to the, some of the things. There's clues that maybe you and I don't readily notice in Scripture, but they're massive, especially to first and second century Christians. For them to read these details would have been like, wow, Jesus is affirming and his movement is affirming the value of women in this world. If you look at the gospel accounts of Jesus at the cross and the resurrection, Jesus isn't on his own on his journey Women are with him. They stay with Jesus on his journey. Women remain with him at the cross. Women prepare his body for burial. Women are the first to hear of the resurrection. 
Women are the first followers to see him after he's resurrected. Women are the first to believe after the resurrection. Guess what the guys do if you follow the story carefully? They doubt. What do the women do? They trust. Whoa, well done, ladies. Thank you for showing us the way. Women are the first apostles after the resurrection. If you look at the word apostle, it means sent ones. What does the resurrected Christ speak to these women who come and see him? Go tell the others. He sends them apostolically. How affirming. And women are the first evangelists. The first ones to carry the message of the risen Christ to others. Women are numbered at Pentecost where there's a fulfillment of a prophecy from the Old Testament in the book of Joel where it says, I'll pour up my spirit on your sons and your daughters, on men and women. Acts features women as converts. They get named. They get included. They are named as those who hosted and led churches. In Acts chapter 12, this is maybe my most favorite detail in the whole message In Acts chapter 12, there's a beautiful story of when Peter gets released from prison, miraculously. And he comes and knocks at a door, and a servant girl named Rhoda answers the door. And Luke, who is writing the Gospel of Luke and the book of Acts, by the way, Luke names or refers to 50 women in his writing. He has caught on. Jesus is doing something revolutionary here. Jesus is valuing women. They've got to be mentioned in the story as well. And so when a servant girl opens the door as it's been knocked. Luke says, Rhoda answered the door. Now you and I could read that and just think, oh, oh, that's interesting. Maybe we should write that down as a maybe baby name one day or a pet name or something like that. We don't, maybe in our Western world, we don't think naturally, why is that name in there? I'll tell you why that name is in there. She's a servant girl. Who is she? According to Rome, Who is she? She is nothing. She's a commodity. She's a second-class citizen that any man who's free could do whatever he wants with any time. There's no consequence. That's what Rome thinks of her. But she's now in the church. She's found Jesus. She's discovered the real value that God sees in her. And so according to Luke and according to the Bible, she's not just a nobody who answers a door. This is Rhoda. She has a name. She has value. I love it. This isn't just a New Testament thing. This has been God's heart all along. Unfortunately, various takes on various scriptures get distorted and pulled out of view from God's intention. But God's heart has always been, since creation, to value and uphold the place of women in our world. Let me ask you a question. What's the most important story in the Jewish culture? It's the most important story in the Jewish culture. It's the story of the Exodus. God's people were, were kept as slaves in Egypt. And then there's this remarkable you know, liberation of them out of Egypt through the work of Moses by God's hand. It's it's the most important story in Jewish culture. It gets referred to and referred back to through the rest of the Old Testament. And if you look at New Testament writing, the words of Jesus, the teaching of the first church leaders, they constantly refer back to this amazing work of deliverance and, uh, you know, saving work of God at the Exodus. 
So in the first two chapters of Exodus, the story is set up for us, and we're getting all these really important details, and we understand Pharaoh's really bad, but God's heart is to thwart Pharaoh and rescue his people. And we get so used to Moses at the center of this story, and rightly so, God uses him uniquely and powerfully. But we can breeze on by some important details that are left purposefully by God's design in in Exodus chapter 1 and 2. Who are the ones that are so key in thwarting Pharaoh and rescuing God's people? Hebrew mothers, Hebrew midwives, Moses' mother, Moses' sister, and even, ironically and wonderfully, Pharaoh's daughter herself. Who is God using in this important work? He is using Women. If you look throughout the Old Testament, we find other characters like Deborah, a tremendous leader, and Ruth, somebody who was used so pivotally in the story of God throughout Scripture. In the New Testament, as we are anticipating the arrival of Christ, we hear about people like Mary and Elizabeth and Anna. These are the first spirit-filled people of the New Testament, women. And if Mary could be entrusted to carry and deliver the word of God from her womb, then certainly God continues to entrust women to carry and deliver the word of God from their mouths as leaders. Unlike other religious systems and faith views that are reasonable in this world, in Christianity... We discover Jesus and his word most powerfully elevating, affirming, and valuing women. So what does this mean for marriages and for all of us here today? Husbands, cherish your wives. Treat her as your equal. Fathers, cherish, treasure your daughters. Fathers, empower your daughters. Brothers, respect your sisters. No demeaning or belittling humor towards females. Gentlemen, don't join in joking about women in ways that treat them like objects or possessions. Joking about women this way only resurrects cultural stereotypes of yesteryear that are anti-Christ. I have a friend who has a construction company called Lincroft in the Lower Mainland. And um, a few years ago, we were spending a bit of time together and I was just asking him how business is going and what his team is like. He has multiple crews. And he said, I got to tell you this story about this guy on our team. He said, I, it's just like this great culture is formed on our, on, our, on, our, on our cruise. He said, I got this young guy, he's about 19 years old. And um, I, I hired this other guy onto a crew, he's about 50 years old. This guy, let's call him Dan, the 50-year-old. And Dan, one day on the job site, starts mouthing off and joking inappropriately about women. So along comes the 19-year-old over to the 50-year-old who's got all the experience and all the clout and all that kind of stuff. He says, listen, Dan, 
We love having you on our team here at Lincroft Homes. You're an important part of our team. But I've got to let you know, here at Lincroft Homes, we don't joke about women like that. And the 19-year-old just laid down something and said, this is what our culture's like. And so I'm inviting you, man. It takes real courage. It takes no courage at all to joke about others. It takes real courage to, to be the one that steps up and say, here at this school or here in this office or here on this job site or in this home, we, we don't joke like that. But that's what we're called to do, gentlemen. Man, I'm inviting you to join in the movement of Jesus and be the ones who through your actions and your words gesture to women and the world around us, that we want them to get up and to be free from their suffering. Let's stand together. Father, as a church family, we acknowledge and affirm every woman in our church family, every young girl, every baby girl, every young adult, every adult, every mother, every grandmother, every single female that's part of this church community. Jesus, we look to your words, we look to your ways, and we want to follow you. We want the Comox Valley to be a place that's great for our daughters and our children and family members. We want this church community to be one that's life-giving to women. Father, I pray your blessing in rich ways. In this room, there are mothers, daughters, aunts, women of all kinds. You know their story. You know the joys, the hopes, the delights, the aches and agonies in their hearts too. By your grace, bless them. Help each man in this room youngest to oldest, to champion your cause of affirming and elevating ladies in our midst and in our community. For your sake and for your kingdom, we pray this in Jesus' name. And everybody said, amen. amen. May God bless you. Thanks again for listening to today's message. We hope that it encouraged you as you live out your faith in everyday life. Make sure to download our church app by typing Comox Pentecostal into Google Play or the App Store to enjoy more podcasts, Bible resources, giving options, and more.